Welcome to Make the Connection. I'm Jennifer Stevens, and I'm excited to have a conversation today with a friend of mine and a current member of the Texas House of Representatives, a chairman in the Texas House of Representatives, uh, Ford Price from District 87. Ford, thanks for being with me. Absolutely. Thanks, Jennifer, for the invitation. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. So let's, um, you know, my I grew up in politics, so I've been around it forever and ever. You and I first worked together, I think, back when I was with John Cornyn's campaign, I think, for uh, for U.S. Senate. Might have been Attorney General, though. I can't can't remember. <laughs> um, but we've, we've known each other a long time. And so talk to me a little bit about, you know, your background. How did you decide to make a jump from being a really amazing community advocate and volunteer in politics to decide to run for uh, state representative? Well, that's a, that's a long story, so I'm going to make it as uh, brief as I can. But it, the, the reality was back when I decided to run for the state uh, house, I had never run for public office before. And the, uh, the, the unique thing to me, and I was practicing law here in the Texas Panhandle and had been you know, a longtime resident, born and raised here, spent my life really mostly working with folks here to improve the community. And I really saw how an individual with some commitment and passion and roots can make a huge difference here. And, and I think that's true almost anywhere. I just uh, have such strong feelings about the Panhandle. I love it up here. It's a, a great part of the state to live in and, and work in and raise a family in. When the opportunity came up to run, um, it was uh, exciting to me because I really in, enjoy the policy side of, of uh, the legislative process and having practiced law, uh, really the legislature is where law and policy come together. That is where, you know, you, you see the, the benefits of uh, or consequences of, of uh, laws that are debated, passed, and the words that are used make a huge difference. And so I really was excited at the opportunity. I saw that, uh, you know, not just uh, through, say, one organization or one event or one candidate, you know, as, as making a difference and helping all that is fine, but getting elected and being able to serve a broader group of people and help them and represent the area was exciting. And so that's why, you know, decided to run initially. And um, you and I were talking a little bit ago, just uh, how, how, you know, 10 years comes and goes really quickly. I can't even believe it's been a decade since that decision was made. But um, I give a lot of credit to my wife, Karen, because uh, the, <laughs> through the whole process, I decided, you know, hey, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how much time this will take. I'm not exactly sure what my schedule will be. I don't know exactly how this is going to affect all of us. And we had four kids at home at the time. And, and, uh, and I said, you make the decision, Karen, whatever you want to do. I said, here's what I know. And she said, well, don't do it. I don't want you to leave the house. I went to bed. I only had about a day to decide to file because of the timing of filing at the time. She woke me up in the middle of the night and said, I'm changing my mind. She said, it's people like you. I want to see run for office. I don't want to be selfish. Go ahead and do it. So that's a, that's a short version of the story, but it was, uh, it was fast and furious and uh, we've never looked back. It's been an exciting experience. And I'm real privileged to, to do it. Well, you know, and Texas is better for it. And I thank you. And I can tell you, you know, I grew up, my dad was in the Texas house. He served for 18 years. And you're right, it went by like that. And, um, you know, when he decided to retire, you know, when he, when he ran, I mean, I was very young. And um, so growing up, you know, really without a dad, I mean, he would, he, they will, he, I laugh now when people say, oh, we may have a, a special session. I mean, we lived in special sessions in the, you know, 
late seventies and all through the eighties. So, you know, that was just our life, but, um, but it's people that are committed to the state and to something bigger than themselves um, are, you know, we have to have people like that serve and, and those families have to step up and be willing to sacrifice that time. And um, so, you know, for those of us who understand how much it takes and, and what you guys do, you know, we're thankful and we're grateful. And, you know, politics has evolved a lot and it's evolved even in the last 10 years. And I'm curious about, you know, your opinion of, of, of the evolution of advocacy. You know, do you think now that social media and the grassroots engagement opportunities or challenges that can come out of social media, do you think that's a, you know, a positive, a negative? How much do you think members, you know, kind of rely on social media as opposed to maybe a traditional lobby team or, or you know, a community expert or, or someone calling them? I really think it's changed a lot, even just since I was first elected. So the past 10 years, um, I've seen so much more engagement through social media and the use of social media to get a campaign message out. Now, it's good and bad. It's a lot cheaper, faster, and easier to get a message out, but it's also faster, cheaper, and easier for folks to get negative messaging, mis misinformation out there, or you know, just troll accounts or throw up, you know, uh, distractive uh, or distracting messages or whatever the case is going to be. So uh, it is now just a uh, almost absolutely imperative piece of any campaign, but you have to, you have to constantly stay on top of it. So, I mean, you, you know, you can't just have a uh, Facebook page. You need a Facebook page. You need you know, a Twitter account, you know, possibly Instagram, you, you, you have all these social media sort of platforms that you need to monitor. You need to have your message uh, out there and you need to be active on it. It can't be stagnant, you know, and, and uh, but it is a good way to, to engage with folks. Um, you can't answer every comment and every, um, you know, possible question that may come up through there. So it gets a little time consuming. You have to balance that, I guess. But the reality was, you know, 10 years ago, I think, uh, um, you know, there, there was a little bit of that, you know, use of social media and digital advertising. Um, today, I think it's much more significant and uh, you can just, you know, specifically tailor it. You can ge use geofencing. You can, uh, you know, target people who have a certain pattern and history and, you know, uh, you can identify you know, down to the city block, really, uh, who you want to target for certain advertising and things like that. So it can be a very useful tool. Um, but it is, uh, it's changed a lot. And uh, I still think there's no substitute for, you know, the walking your, your districts and actually personal engagement, whether it be through town halls or door knocking or neighborhood meetings or whatever that, you know, may look like. But it's also very different uh, depending on where you live. So for instance, up in the Panhandle, at least the district that I represent, I would say that most social media interaction occurs on Facebook. Um, now, if I were in Austin, I bet that would not be the case. I bet it would be Twitter. I bet it would be Instagram, um, you know, and, and so different areas, maybe candidates need just to be aware of what's, you know, utilized more. Um, and so it is a great alternative though, because television advertising and things like that are still very expensive, print advertising is expensive kind of need to do it all, but uh, I, I think the use of social media has just blown up over the past 10 years and probably will continue to be that way as the voting age population and folks, you know, are getting older. They're used to that. They, they're used to using that. That's where they get their news. 
Um, it's pretty interesting. Um, so it can be great. It can also be really frustrating. And I guess it just depends on the, you know, how you use it and how things are going. But I would not advise anybody who's running in politics today not to have access to those accounts and use it because it is very, very important. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I mean, I, I completely agree. And, you know, for us where we work, we don't lobby, but we work with the lobby teams and with communication teams, or we are the communication team to create that digital presence for our clients. And what I find is shocking to me is there still are a lot of people in advocacy in Austin who say, oh yeah, you know, well, we might have a Facebook. And I'm just like, have you not looked down from the gallery during a vote? Every single member is like, you know, refreshing on their, on their Twitter feed for TX Ledge, you know? And I'm like, you have to be there. And you said it earlier, you've got to be where, you know, be where people are and some people are Facebook and you know, whatever, but you've got to be where people are. And if your target audience from an advocacy perspective is a voter, you need to understand where they are. And if your target audience from an advocacy perspective is, you know, grassroots, and then if it's the ledge in the middle of a Texas legislative session, I surely wouldn't leave my, leave my Twitter feed unannounced or unattended. <laughs> no, so that would be bad. It, that would be bad. It, you know, it, it would, it's changed so much, but I, I agree with you. I think in a way it certainly can be negative when we all have experienced the, um, the challenges that come with someone hiding, you know, sort of it's easy to hide behind the keyboard. Um, but at the same time, I do think the opportunity to share good information in a quick and quick and succinct way, you know, is, is very powerful. So, so let's talk about uh, the upcoming legislative session. You have just announced that you are not going to run for speaker. So that means you get to have Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> as much as you can before a session. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. As much as you can before a session. That's right. Um, I'm curious about, you know, what do you think are going to be the, the core issues this legislative session um, maybe from an opportunity perspective, as well as, of course, challenges. The upcoming session, I, I think, you know, when people say things like this is the most important election of our lifetime or we'll never have seen anything like it, I really think it applies to the upcoming session just from a mechanical standpoint. We'll still be dealing with the, you know, restrictions of, of COVID-19 and some of the um, you know, safety measures that will need to be employed will just be very cumbersome because the whole legislative environment, as you well know, or, you know, relationships and meetings and putting a, packing a bunch of people into conference rooms and on, you know, committee, you know, uh, committee hearings and things like that, which I think will have to be uh, adjusted somewhat. And, you know, different offices may have different procedures with regard to how many people they let in and if it's by appointment only and, you know, just things of that nature. So I think uh, this session will look differently. I think it will also slow the the flow of, of uh, bills through the process quite significantly. Um, you know, it's last session we had over 7,000 bills filed and, you know, it was a, a busy, busy session, just like most in recent uh, history have been. But, you know, uh, I think this one we'll see fewer bills filed, but I definitely think we'll see fewer bills you know, process through each chamber and land on the governor's desk. And so really um, from a prioritization standpoint, uh, obviously the budget's the only bill that has to pass. And right now we're facing a, you know, significant challenge, uh, budgetary challenge. We have a $4.6 billion shortfall for the current buying, which just means 
you know, we, we, we have re received less revenue than we anticipated for the current biennium. So we need to fill that gap and, and, and get out of that uh, hole before we actually budget for the next two year biennium, the 22-23 biennium. And uh, the, the controller will tell us in January how much revenue we have to spend. And I would not anticipate that to be, you know, larger than last session or even as much as last session. So we'll probably have a very tight financial set of circumstances to work within. And, and that puts pressure on everybody because that means reduced spending in, in uh, service areas and agencies and things that the, the state, you know, spends money on, which uh, I think we can manage through and it'll be, it'll be difficult, but it'll be okay. It just creates, you know, some challenges that, have to be handled. So that will be priority number one. Uh, priority number two um, typically would be in this, uh, you know, decennial year, our, our redistricting um, processes, because that has to be done. And uh, without, you know, delays and global pandemics, we would receive all the population and apportionment data by April the 1st um, and finish that up or try to so that we can uh, have all those redistricting bills passed and uh, you know that that means redrawing congressional districts, state house, state senate, SBOE, judicial districts. I mean, it's a, a very important, you know, uh, process that will affect the next 10 years politically in the state of Texas. So a lot of interest in that. It looks like those those uh, numbers may not get to us uh, by April the 1st, probably won't. Um, I'm hopeful that they get to us before the end of the session so we can at least have worked on it and take it up before the end of the regular session. I think, you know, that's possible, but most indications are we will deal with that in a special session. So you joked about special sessions. I'm not making any plans for next summer or next fall, because at a minimum, I think we'll be uh, very likely dealing with some redistricting issues, but those two issues will, will take precedence. And of course we got the pandemic that creates, um, you know, some, some, I think review and evaluation on both sides of the aisle uh, on, you know, how the state's reacting to uh, to a disaster, a declared emergency, something that is beyond what we have experienced in the past with normal, you know, hurricane, wildfire, tornado type natural disasters. I don't think anybody uh, who, who probably drafted the code or has worked under it, um, you know, anticipated that we would have almost a year of a global pandemic that affects literally everything and everybody. Now, you talked about opportunities. Um, some silver linings probably throughout this process is that we've learned to live without some regulations that uh, previously existed. And, um, you know, that may not be all bad. We may go back and say, look, that, you know, actually was something that um, was waived during the pandemic and maybe should remain, you know, um, you know, we could live without it, you know, and so we can, ease some of the burdens on our businesses. We can ease some of the problems with um, with some of the licenses that, you know, or the requirements that we impose to obtain them. I think some of that will probably have some legs. We'll, we'll, we'll go back and uh, reduce some of the burdens that, that we just didn't need to, to live with. And so, um, you know, that, that'll help if we can modernize some of our statutes. I mean, our eyes are kind of open now with regard to some of this and obviously huge public health ramifications and uh, you know, that's that's all, you know, going to help us better prepare so that if anything like this happens in the future, we're going to be in a much better position to deal with it. And so I think, uh, you know, it's like I said, obviously, healthcare, Medicaid shortfall, broadband expansion, 
um, telemedicine and telehealth. These are some of the issues, you know, that I think uh, uh, will will be front and center when we come back. They are important. I mean, they've been underscored and highlighted throughout this process, but it does give us an opportunity to refocus some attention on areas that, that really need it and probably deserve it uh, this particular session. And so I'm hopeful that uh, not only do we have the headaches of dealing with the pandemic and the financial crises and everything else, but we'll see some opportunities on the horizon to actually move the needle in a positive direction. Yeah, I think so. I think for, um, you know, for me, I, I think there's a couple thought processes I have. One is, you know, I definitely always want to be thinking, okay, where are the opportunities? But at the same time, I encourage and hope that we don't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I think, you know, it sort of felt like whack-a-mole back in the spring. It was like, and now this is gone and that's gone and you can do this and you can do that. And I think that sounds good. And in the moment, everyone's just trying to do the best they can under the circumstances. But, you know, given, given the amount of um, time that we have to think about these things and the amount of time that some of these things have been in place, I do fear, you know, just, that we might go a little bit too far. You know, as a mom, I don't want to see alcohol being delivered to my front doorstep when I have two teenagers at home. It's hard enough for me to make sure I lock the liquor cabinet, you know? So there's things like that that I just, you know, I do worry about a little bit. I, what I think is going to be an interesting conversation, and I'm curious about your opinion about this, and it's something that I've really been paying a lot of attention to here recently. Um, I'm sure it will not shock you to find out that I have created an advocacy group within my public school district uh, to force, uh, basically force pressure on our school board to reopen our schools. Our school board did not have any intention whatsoever. Our school administration had no intention whatsoever of putting our children back in the classroom. And I have a fundamental problem with that. And so I, um, I discovered that. I created, a, I created a Facebook group. I recruited about 1,400 people to join it. I raised $70,000. We bought PPE wow. for all our teachers because our school district didn't take care of the PPE for them. And, um, and our kids are back in school. Now we're dealing with you know, the, the next layer, which is kind of draconian protocols and requiring testing when a kid's not even sick and these kinds of things. So so I'm, I'm dealing with all that, but I'll tell you what I'm interested in. You mentioned the $4 billion budget deficit, and, and I think you're right. We're not, it's not like we're going to come up with, you know, a whole lot of new, new revenue between now and when the controller gives you your, your estimate. So what I worry about is, does it become tempting in some way to use the technologies of Zoom and Zoom Classroom and all the, the online learning? Does that become tempting to the Texas legislature as a way to cut public education? You know, now you don't have to have 30 kids in a classroom with one teacher. You could have 200 kids in a Zoom classroom with a teacher. You know, I, I can tell you watching my kids, I call it virtual sort of learning. They don't really learn in a virtual environment. It's terrible. And so that's why I advocated so strongly to get my kids back in the classroom. But I worry because I know what happens in session and I know how precious those dollars are. In Texas, you know, People say, oh, cut taxes, cut taxes. But the reality is, if you live in Texas and your taxes are high, it's either because of your local entity or because of the feds. It's not really because of the state. And so people don't understand how tight our Texas budget is. So I do worry about the temptation to maybe strip from the public education budget, you know, through the, oh, we're going to modernize and use technology. And I'm just curious about your opinion of that. Well, it's, it's funny you, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, those issues because it really does underscore and illustrate how big a state Texas is. I mean, up here where I live, 
500 miles away from where you're sitting today. Um, you know, our schools really almost opened, uh, you know, I mean, of course they were, they were closing the spring, but when it came time to reopen this fall, um, they were prepared. Uh, they opened, um, I'd say in my rural district, parts of my district, nine out of 10 children, over 90%, you know, were attending in person, uh, here in Amarillo Independent School District, where I live, 33,000 students, uh, probably a little over three quarters, close to three quarters of the students were uh, attending in person. They had the option and several school districts here recently terminated the virtual option altogether. Now, the reason um, that's been occurring is because the uh, of the startling numbers of kids who either aren't logging on or are not actually learning through the virtual process. So, um, it, you know, it, it was a stopgap and the educators had to pivot quickly to adapt to a very unknown and uncertain and somewhat, um, you know, scary environment. But, you know, we've learned a lot more through the process, both about the virus and the spread of the virus, but we've also learned about how kids are learning. And when I've talked to teachers and I've talked to lots of educators throughout my district and elsewhere, they're very concerned about, you know, uh, the comprehension, the level of comprehension that a student is receiving when they're just electronic or virtual only. Uh, and it, it made sense to me because they told me, they said, look, if I'm in a class and that student is sitting there and they have a facial expression like the light bulb went off or it's not going off, I get it. If I'm in a classroom and I'm being taped or I see 40, you know, little pixels on a screen of students, I can't really always graphs whether or not and this is like a nonverbal cue but it's important and they said you know I really uh, you know can't wait for all my kids to be back in their in their classrooms and and so I you know I I don't think I've had a whole lot of positive feedback on sole solely you know engaged in virtual instruction other than you know it, it was good like when it had to be or if you couldn't you know for some reason and I, I know everybody's situations are different um, you know, get to a classroom or whatever, but I really don't, I don't personally believe your fear is going to become a reality. I mean, I think, you know, in a bad budget cycle, everything's on the table. People look for every possible way to, to either, um, you know, reduce exemptions, level a playing field, get creative, you know, come up with revenue some way, shape or form or whatever. You, you just hear all kinds of ideas. So it wouldn't surprise me that the idea is, raised, but it would surprise me if it had any real support, either from educators statewide, um, parents, you know, I mean, on a broad scale. Um, I just don't see that happening because I think there's a real concern. I mean, statistically, and I don't want to uh, almost say the numbers because I've forgotten how high it was, but it was, it was shockingly high with regard to, you know, last spring, for instance, the numbers of students who they could not, you know, generally justify our track as having received all the instruction they were supposed to through logging on and, and all that. And it's, again, it's a broadband issue too. I mean, I live in Absolutely. an area where it's completely underserved. And so, you know, for students to be able to actually receive reliable internet connection and actually receive that instruction, it's not that, it's not that accessible in all places, you know, without maybe even going to the school parking lot or logging on someplace where there is better service. So I'm, I'm not uh, of an opinion that that's going to happen. In fact, I would be an advocate against it pretty, pretty, uh, you know, um, resoundingly. I just can't imagine that that we would get to a point where that would become a reality. 
I do think it's great to have as a supplement, I think, to expand our virtual school network and offer different courses, especially in places where you don't have a, a teacher that can offer certain curriculum. That's great. And it's a super, you know, addition or supplement to our, um, our, our schools. But as a substitute in order to reduce cost, boy, that would be short-sighted. I think that would hurt us down the road for sure. I think, I th and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I completely agree. And I think the other question that will come your way is <clears throat> from places that maybe are a little different in their thinking and philosophy than mine or maybe yours um, is, you know, well, what's wrong with virtual? And we, you know, don't cut the budget, but certainly give us the flexibility for online learning as much as we want. And, I don't know if you saw the headline today in the Texas Tribune talking about the significant number of kids that are falling behind in the quality of their education. So, you know, I would also encourage our legislature to not, not do that. I don't think we should give TEA any authority to allow these districts to expand their virtual and cut back on the in-person learning. I think the kids get left behind. The two other issues that are gonna come out of this, I think this session are the mental health conversation, the mental health impact of this. Um, of course, and then just, you know, like you said, the broadband issue is obviously enormous and in, in your area of the state, it's a challenge, you know, across the board. And then, you know, honestly, there's, there's pockets of kids that are in, in, you know, very urban areas sure. who are having to go find Wi-Fi at a McDonald's or a Starbucks or a wherever they can try to find Wi-Fi because their home doesn't have it. So it's a, it's an equity issue also, I think. It is, it is. I, uh, I'm I'm hopeful that we've learned a lot through this process and we see where we can improve, you know, some of our virtual learning options, but as a substitute, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And and so I, I don't doubt that we won't uh, hear about it or discuss it at some, you know, time or, or you know, some shape, but I, I really believe that uh, the focus will be back on uh, strengthening and supporting, you know, the school system statewide and, you know, over 5 million students uh, receive their education that way right now through public schools in Texas. And it is uh, critical that we do a good job. That's 37% of our all funds budget of $251 billion. And so you're right. Anytime you have that much, you know, uh, money going to a certain area, folks will look at, at ways to reduce it without possibly impacting the students. But this would definitely be detrimental, you know, as a substitute. So I think uh, I know you and I are on the same page. It sounds like now. I don't know about everybody else, but I suspect we got a lot of company. Yeah, I hope so. I think so. Well, you'll you'll have no doubt a powerful committee position, and I have a big mouth, and I'm good at Facebook, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter. So we'll we'll probably do okay. I want to ask you: Do you think do you think the legislative session? Do you think politics is cyclical anymore, or do you think you're just always serving and always running? Well, as a state house member, I kind of feel like we're always serving and always running because we run every other year, you know. So even when you're uh, in session and you're in Austin uh, for that 140 days or whatever amount of time with special sessions, you might be there. Uh, you can't exactly, you can't turn it off. You can't just, you know, um, not be uh, an advocate back in your district and keep your, um, you know, constituents informed, which is part of your official job, but also folks are going to want to know, you know, where you stand on issues for political purposes or, or otherwise. And I think, uh, you know, the, the reality is we, we finish a legislative session in an odd year, usually in the summertime, and you've got about four and a half months before you file again. 
Um, you know, you have to make that decision now in November. And so uh, it is, it is, um, and, and you d usually don't wait till November to make that decision. You usually have uh, indicated and start preparing because as we all know, if you've been involved in a campaign, it's, uh, it's like setting up a, a corporation. You better be darn successful right out of the gate for, you know, that, that three, four or five month period. You can't just decide at the 11th hour to, to make it work and then start getting organized. And so uh, you finish up, you get home, you refile, and then you run. And primaries are in March, generals back in November. And then, uh, you know, when that's over with, you're just right back there again in January. So it's a little different for House members than maybe some statewide electeds or other offices that have longer terms. Maybe they don't feel quite as, um, you know, the treadmill maybe doesn't go as fast all the time. But I do think, and, and actually, I don't, I don't mind. I don't want to sound like that's a bad thing because um, House members, they're designed by, you know, by their very – uh, designed, I guess, to be close to the people um, and, and run frequently and have that sort of responsiveness. And that's a good, that's a good thing. And so um, I, I do think that it's in this today's environment too, with electronic communications and, you know, the way we just function, um, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty constant um, environment. You just can't lay one down and pick up the other. You got to learn to balance them both uh, yeah. pretty much all the time. Yeah, it's um, something that I think is interesting, you know, so, you know, when you're in Austin, uh, of course, I live here, but but when you're here and sessions going on, you know, I, I, my friends who, you know, maybe where I grew up in Denton or else, if they're outside of it, they'll say, you know, well, I don't understand the role of the lobbyist and is lobbying bad and, you know, help me understand that. And, you know, something that that I have always, you know, said, I don't lobby, but something that I've always said is, you know, I think lobbyists play an incredibly important role in our political process because of what you just described. You are always either running or serving, running or serving. You make a whopping, is it still 7,200 bucks a year, you know, for, for all the time you invest into the state? I mean, you're making a whopping $7,000 a year. You're running or serving. You've got however many school children you just said that are your constituents. You've got however many teachers that are constituents, prison system, roads, healthcare, all the things that come at you and you're supposed to get here and become an expert on all of them immediately so that you can make, you know, votes and, and, and decisions. And so I've always thought that lobbying was a really important part of the, of the process so that you can very quickly get quality information to help you make a quality decision. Um, so my question to you is, I'm knowing that that's important, but also knowing you need to be and you are in touch with your constituents back home, you know, what's that balance? You know, do you, do you find yourself listening to, you know, maybe advocates for a trade organization, for example, but then turning to your friends that are, are within that trade back home and sort of gathering information from those sources? How do you get yourself educated on so many complex issues? so quickly, session to session, while everything's flying at you? <laughs> well, there's no easy answer or simple answer to that question. I think everybody probably takes their own approach. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, at least in the legislature, you are going to become much more knowledgeable about the issues where you have focus. So if you are on certain committees, licensing, for instance, or public health or natural resources, you're going to learn a lot about the issues that come before those committees and hear from experts, uh, not just in the area, but uh, from all over the country and sometimes the world. You get a lot of information thrown at you and you learn it very quickly. 
But as you mentioned, you know, there's criminal justice and economic development and transportation and everything else, you know, that, that is very complicated and, and obviously complex and nuanced. And so you have to have multiple sources of information. And for me personally, um, you know, using a government relations or lobbyist uh, who works for a, an association or a, uh, a certain group or represents maybe uh, uh, clients that are involved in that area, whatever that area is, I think is one good source of information in many cases. Now, they're like anything else. I mean, there's good and bad attorneys and good and bad bankers and good and bad doctors and good and bad everything. Um, they're very talented, dedicated, professional um, registered lobbyists who you know are giving you both the good and the bad of a certain issue will tell you straight up you know how this may or may not impact not necessarily the state but your district I mean sometimes statewide issues have different effects on different areas whether it's rural versus urban for instance or something like that so the good ones are, are cognizant and aware of those issues they come in and sort of lay out the entire picture in a concise way so you can understand and if you have questions they generally have such a deep uh you know pointed uh you know facts or knowledge base that they can answer your questions but i'm 100 percent of the time going to go back into the district that i represent and i know and, and spend so much time on the ground here um, with uh, with folks in in the district in diff different areas whether it be manufacturing agriculture energy real estate whatever it is uh, ask them, you know, and say, well, this is what I'm hearing. Um, this is what I understand to be accurate. Is that your experience? Tell me what you think about this proposed issue or this legislation. And one of the most fun things at every session is, you know, I've got a lot of good contacts and relationships throughout my district. And I tell them, you call me, you, you know, call me on my cell phone. I don't care. I'll be on the floor probably all day and half the night. So you just let me know anytime there are bills before the body that uh, you feel are really good or bad or should be amended, et cetera. And I mean, you know, I've got folks take me up on it daily. And so I will be sitting there at my desk and I will have, you know, three or four text messages or phone calls. Please vote for this. Don't vote for this. This will be good for us or bad for us. If this could just be amended a certain way, this would help. And I mean, I find that to be invaluable because it makes me a better advocate. It makes me a better um, representative for, the folks that sent me down there to to do that job so uh, in many cases you know we're always on the same page because I know the folks here really well and I live here and I mean you know as you pass these laws you go back home and you live under them but you can't be an expert in everything so you just can't be um, knowledgeable you know as much as you would like to be in every field on every issue so it is super helpful to have those multiple points of contact and understand you know both the high level sort of um, perspective, but also the, the boots on the ground perspective and everything in between. And I think the more information we get as members, the better, um, you know, try to stay open-minded and objective. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the folks are going to disagree and that's okay. That's part of the process. But um, I really rely on just about, you know, everybody I can both, you know, in the capital environment, but certainly in the district to, uh, to get the information I need to make good decisions. I don't ever want to make one that's not educated. Yeah, no, that's good. I think that's all well said. I think, um, you know, we know the margin in the House, everyone's predicting will be very slim. You know, whether Republicans do or don't hold the House, I, you know, I don't know. I, my gut tells me probably, but by barely maybe. Um, but, you know, none of us know. We all, and, and we never know. We shake the magic eight ball and we see, but, you know, one of the things that I think um, 
used to be really special about the Texas House and, and probably the Senate too, but I didn't, I, you know, that wasn't where my experience was, but really special about the Texas House were the, the relationships and, uh, and the, the different, you know, connections that were required to get something done because margins were thin. And, you know, one of the best examples I can give is that my dad, who was very conservative, he thinks I'm liberal, which will make anybody who knows me laugh, but, but he does. And, um, you know, he was very conservative from a rural part of North Texas, but, to, you know, two of his, two of his best buds in the, in the legislature were, you know, Al Edwards and, and um, Sylvester Turner, you know, you know, Democrats from very urban areas. And, and my dad said, you know, man, I, I love working with those guys because I knew they'd tell me the truth. I knew they'd tell me the impact to my district. And, you know, and I could really, I could understand the other side from it. And I think sometimes that gets lost, you know, when the balance gets so out of whack. Um, and so I think it will be interesting to see, you know, obviously, you know, personally, I hope the Republicans hold the House, but, but I think either way, a slim margin, there can actually be some opportunity in that. So I'll be curious to see, see how that goes this session. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that is, you, you hit on something that I think is unique to the Texas uh, House. And, and, you know, I, I, it's a good thing, which is uh, the relationship aspect and the, uh, uh, just the respect that, that folks have for each other in the body. And I, you know, I'm not going to say that it's always that way with every person all the time. However, I think historically and by and large, um, the members work together for the still for the betterment of the state. Um, and, and, you know, oftentimes that means you'll see a, a, a group of rural Republicans and, and uh, you know, urban Democrats, and it doesn't really have anything to do with partisan politics. It's about the way certain policies are going to affect certain parts of the state, you know, and, and what makes sense for Houston may not make sense for Dumas, Texas. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things that uh, comes up. And so, you know, you see a lot of uh, cooperation in the House, you know, across the aisle, something you would never see, for instance, right now in the climate in Washington, D.C., folks ask me all the time, is, is Austin just as bad as Washington? And I say, oh my gosh, no, not even close. You know, I mean, we can have uh, policy debates, knock down, drag out, day-long arguments, and still shake hands, walk off the, the, the floor, and, you know, uh, be, be, you know, respectful and friendly. And I mean, that, that's still something that I appreciate about the House. And it, it's, by and large, still the case with most members. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I do think you're right about the, the cooperation aspect. And I think that anytime you have um, margins like we're dealing with now, if anybody hopes to be successful moving their own legislative agenda, for instance, uh, there's, no, um, there's no option but to be um, you know, capable of working with multiple members from different regions and backgrounds and often parties just to be able to to, uh, you know, have the numbers necessary to actually, um, you know, pass a, a piece of legislation. So I think it's going to create that environment because I do think it will be close, just like you said. Um, it's already pretty close. It's 83-67. Yeah. Um, and, and so it'll probably tighten up some. And, you know, that's, uh, that's not unusual historically. We've gone through periods where Texas has been super close, 76-74, I think, in 2009. Um, to uh, to my second term when uh, with one person switching parties, I think we had 102 to 48. Those are very different environments to work in. And, um, you know, depending if you're pitching or catching, you may really like it or may really hate it. But the, the reality right. is, 
when it's when it's close, um, people, you know, just uh, they just have to to learn to uh, to work, you know, find some common ground, which is kind of the essence of the legislative process in many ways. And so that's uh, that's okay. So, what one piece of advice would you have for somebody who wants to serve in the House or Senate? What if you could give them one piece of advice that they're thinking about running? What would it be? Well, I. I I've never been asked that question. That's a great question. Um, I think the the one piece of advice I have, they're running for the house, for instance, uh, be true to your district. Don't, don't um, ever, I mean, don't lose your identity with your district and don't, don't get down to Austin and, and feel like you have to, uh, you know, vote with a certain group, a certain party, a certain constituency that's not reflective of who your district is because uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's your it's your it's your community that is entrusting you to represent their values, their their belief system, their priorities. And obviously, you know, you can't get uh, reelected or anything, I guess, if you foul that up. But the reality is, uh, more importantly, you've broken their their trust. They they placed a very valuable thing, you know, by using their vote to elect you. And so whether they voted for you or not, I mean, you represent them. And uh, uh, the reality is you just want to listen and represent your district. So that's the advice I give them. And so then one more question, what advice would you give somebody who wants to work in politics, either running campaigns or maybe, you know, working in the Texas Capitol? You know, if, if somebody really wants to work a campaign, there are going to be lots of opportunities. Don't be afraid to take on a job at any level, especially one that doesn't sound like it's the most glamorous, because the reality is there is no glamorous part of a campaign. It is hard work. And whether it's, you know, licking envelopes or making phone calls or, or uh, you know, just, just putting signs together or whatever the case is going to be, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's generally very hard. But what I've seen over and over again, um, the people that are true believers that work hard and, and they don't care about recognition or credit or the limelight, et cetera, you know, they, they learn a lot. And in this business, when people don't say no, uh, and they are actually willing to work, uh, the opportunities come repeatedly and quickly. And so somebody that's interested in, in the process and working on campaigns, work you know, work for someone and with someone that, you know, you trust and believe in, of course, but I think, you know, just, just take anything and make yourself valuable um, and opportunities will, will come fast. And, you know, you'll look up two years down the road and you'll have learned a ton and you'll probably then be in a position to kind of pick and choose, you know, more carefully or maybe with more options where you want to go. Well, I think that's probably good advice for anybody in any career. And, you know, if you're willing to do the work and not worry about the title, it's shocking how successful, you know, you can be pretty quickly. So I, um, my first job in politics job, not as a kid of a legislator, but a real, you know, job was working for President Bush when he was governor. Wow. And the very first, when he was running for governor, the first time, just to date myself. And the first time, my first responsibility was to photocopy a book. Uh, because, you know, we didn't have the internet yet, so you couldn't download the information and print it. And so we had one book and it was like, you know, two inches thick and it had contact information that several people in the office needed. And so my very first task, they were like, oh, welcome. You know, we're going to pay you like, I think, $150 a month or something like that. And my parking cost me like 200 a month. So that wasn't exactly the best idea ever, but it worked out. And, um, and so my first job was photocopy a book and I stood there and copied it for two weeks straight with a smile on my face and I never complained. And, you know, six years, seven years later, I was running John Cornyn's campaign for U.S. Senate. So 
I think, you know, I do think you're right. As long as you're willing to roll up your sleeves and work hard and, and not complain and you're, you know, you're never too, got, too good for the job given, you know, then I, I think you can, I think you can be pretty successful. The advice I always give everybody is you've got two ears and one mouth and you should use them proportionally. <laughs> and um, I think hey, that's, that's also, that's also good advice for everybody, no matter what yeah. field they're in. I agree. That, that can be hard, you know, I think it, maybe especially when you're young and trying to prove yourself, but I have, I have found it to be valuable. And sometimes I tell myself, are you being proportional? You know, in my head, I'm like, all right, zip it, you know, <laughs> listen and learn. So um, for, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and, and all you do for the state. And, you know, Karen's amazing. Y'all are just such a special family. So I really appreciate you being willing to do this today. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, it's been a great part of my day and it's a lot of fun. It's great to see you and thank you for inviting me. I, I enjoyed every minute and I hope y'all have a great, uh, great rest of the fall. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.